partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Praise God. Tonight I want to preach stand. Everyone say stand. Stand and boom. Everyone say boom. Amen. Stand and boom. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the strength that we find in it. And we ask that you would direct us and guide us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word. In 1885, Erman Ebbinghaus did an experiment with a list of nonsense three-letter words to determine how long one could remember them. 1885, Erman Ebbinghaus was trying to do a study to find out about memory retention, how long one would remember things. His results from that study in 1885 are widely accepted as general theory for how we learn and retain information. He asked, was really trying to get at the question, how much do people forget? Research on all of this contributed to a graph called the forgetting curve that shows within one hour people will have forgotten an average of 50% of the information that was presented. Within 24 hours, they will have forgotten an average of 70% of new information. And within a week, forgetting claims an average of 90% of it. Some people remember more or less, and there may be other contributing factors, but in general, this study captures the situation. And I'm hoping tonight, this is not the first time that I've preached this message, and it will not be the last time that I preach this message. Stand in boom is hoping that somehow this becomes part of the 10% that you remember within a period of time in which you would forget a week, 90% of it. We can look at some historical references that are connected to this title tonight, um, and that is some political strategies in history. The natural world is revelatory because it reveals things in the spiritual world. Paul noted this in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20 when he said the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul was saying the invisible things that we cannot see, the creation of the world that is clearly seen, 
helps, under, helps us understand what we cannot see. And so there is a revelatory power that comes through the Scripture and the Word of God. And the natural world is part of that element that helps us understand that God is a creator and that there is eternal import and evidence based on the things that we can see in our external world. That is also not just creation, but in history. We can see things in history that help us understand the spiritual ramifications. And there are several strategies in history that have been proposed and then have been activated. And there are two that I want to point out to you tonight historically. One of them is called appeasement. Appeasement means calming or acquiring peace by way of concessions or gifts. Most commonly, it is used for the policy of accepting the imposed conditions of an aggressor in lieu of armed resistance. Meaning that if there is an aggressor and they're wanting to take territory or they're wanting to make demands, that you appease them by giving up something in the process. It usually means giving in to the demands of an aggressor in order to avoid war. And so we see appeasement being used especially since the Great War. Since World War II, the term gained a negative connotation in the British government, in politics, and in general of weakness, cowardice, and self-deception because it did not work. A famous example of it is Neville Chamberlain's foreign policy that was known as the Munich Agreement during the period from 1937 to 1939 when he pursued a policy of appeasement toward Adolf Hitler's expansionist ambitions. He tried to achieve the, the, the negative impact of war or reduce the impact or stay out of war by giving certain concessions. He was using appeasement. And there's some reasons for that. We can look very harshly at that and say it was negative, it didn't work, but there were some very good reasons why he tried to use that and employed that. It didn't work, and it never works. It has not worked in history, and I'll just tell you here tonight, it does not work in spiritual formation either. You cannot give someone that is demanding something from you, wanting to take something from you. You cannot appease the enemy thinking, I'll just give him a little bit to avoid the war or the conflict. It's not going to happen. The enemy's going to try to take everything from you. Praise God. God has given to us some blessings. We don't need to enter into negotiations with the enemy to try to keep him from coming into our territory. You got to have something that is stronger than that. Amen. And so I don't want to be too judgmental. History is interesting because if you get the right history teacher, it can be amazing. My daughter's going to school and she's telling me some of the history classes she's in are so boring. 
One of the first classes I ever took in a university was, was by a lady that brought history so alive that I it just it was amazing and pulled me into history. And if you, if you find somebody that can teach it in a way that pulls you in and makes you feel like rather than just uh, repeating facts and figures and years and all of this kind of stuff, it will be boring. But this particular teacher brought out some things in history that it became alive to me. So there's a lot of different opinions. You can have a lot of conversations and debates about history. This is one of the reasons why it can be fun because you can compare and contrast. And you can discuss and you can argue. And there's a lot of things that come up in history. One of the things that we certainly want to do is know history so we don't repeat history. And so... We don't want to be too judgmental. There is a reason why Neville Chamberlain was following this particular policy. And one of the reasons why he was following it was because of something that preceded it. And what preceded it was World War I. It was known as the Great War between 1914 and 1918. Prior to that point, war was seen as a noble way to die, an honorable way of servicing one's country. However, with this new world, this new war, World War I, a war on a scale previously never imagined, poison gas and blood quickly washed away those ideals. Why? Because millions perished year after year while the front lines remained unmoved. Something known as trench warfare was introduced with all of its horrors. In a war where 900,000 would die to move the line forward one mile, a great, great expense. How could anybody see such atrocities as a noble act? And so a generation was destroyed by that war. And the seeds were sown of the policy of appeasement, mainly because nobody wanted to experience that again. And so that's where the seeds of appeasement were planted. And that is also what helped a murderous megalomaniac by the name of Adolf Hitler rise to power. In World War I, the Alliance powers, chiefly Great Britain and France, suffered horrific losses. Think about this. Great Britain lost approximately 900,000 young, able-bodied men to the trenches. Almost a million young men. France suffered a staggering 5 million casualties in World War I. So to understand appeasement, you have to understand how horrific those numbers were and are because nobody wanted to experience that again. So you have to look back at that great war to understand why this policy would even come to place. This was a policy of yields, compromises, and sacrificial offerings to Hitler's Germany that allowed him time to rebuild the German military into an amazing whirlwind machine. Why then, when you're giving up a little bit and then you're giving up some yields and some compromises and then 
you're, 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 you're keeping him at bay, but you're giving him time to become strengthened and you're giving in more and more and more. Why then would the leaders of the countries that had to face the horrors of the great war allow such a person to violate the conditions of surrender so blatantly? It's because they didn't want to experience another bloodbath. And so they gave up some things. And when Hitler said he wanted a little bit of Czechoslovakia, he was allowed to have it. And when the other European countries saw some justice in his claim and hoped that he would be satisfied with just that much, he wanted the rest of Czechoslovakia. And he took it, and nobody helped the Czechs. He marched into Austria and was received rapturously, without opposition from the locals, although unification with Austria was forbidden by the Versailles Treaty. No one did anything. So how was he to know that invading Poland would actually cause a war? Your adversary may not ask for the whole continent of your faith, but what about just this piece of land called faithfulness? What about this territory called worship? What about this stuff called a prayer life and fasting and discipleship? He's not going to be content to just take up a little bit until you have given up everything of value. Can I just say here at the outset, you better fight for every bit of territory that you've carved out with a tenacity. Amen. Don't give an inch. This is why boundaries are significant. I said this is why boundaries are significant. You start playing around with boundaries, pretty soon you have no boundaries. And you have lost all of the territory that protects you. That has to do right there with separation and holiness. There are some things that you have to put in your life that are boundaries that tells the enemy, I'm protecting the blessings of God and the goodness of God, and you're not just coming in here and tearing up something that I have built expressly to serve God. I recognize that it is a blessing. It is a strength to me. It is a defense against the enemy. No, in and of itself, it may not be a heaven or hell issue, but if I let you just take an inch, you're going to want more than just an inch. You're going to want feet, and then pretty soon, you're going to want a miles, and I'm not giving up anything. <laughs> Appeasement. Interesting policy in history. The one that is connected to it, they, they're, they're inseparable, is containment. Containment is a foreign policy strategy of the United States in the early years of the Cold War. So this is after World War II. We moved into a period of Cold War where communism was on the rise. And its policy was to try to stop the domino effect of the nations moving politically toward the Soviet Union-based communism rather than the European-American-based capitalism. So it was based on world views and philosophy and economics. And there was this battle that wasn't happening in real time on the surface, but it was happening in subterfuge and espionage underneath the surface 
This is one of the rise to the whole nuclear programs that we have experienced and then has somewhat tapered off. This was a policy of containment. And the whole point is to try to keep things from spreading. And so if the United States failed, then the domino effect would occur and more and more countries would fall into the hands of communism. This is one of the reasons why America entered into Vietnam and also the Korean Wars. And so containment sprung up from the idea that maybe you could isolate an enemy and it would cause the enemy stagnation and then you could cut off supplies. In an, in an old, like, feudal system, you could surround a castle, you could cut off the supply chains, and then pretty soon the people would be isolated and then containment would lead to their defeat. So this is the philosophy, the introductory philosophy that came from a foreign policy that was employed You tried to subvert the enemy. You tried to contain the enemy. And you would use espionage and sabotage. And the anticipated result is that this would be such a high cost to the enemy that it would take so long to rectify it and change it and left alone. It would consume all the resources. And so this would give you the strategic upper hand. And eventually... The United States hoped that containment would cause the fall of the Soviet Union and its satellite nations. Later in development, the United States containment policy developed into a principled opposition to the Soviet ratcheting of its sphere of influence. Yet it suffered setbacks. And after the U.S. pulled out from Vietnam conflict, which was one of the setbacks, the policy of containment was discredited. And U.S. politicians advanced new theories of detente and peaceful coexistence. Now, I've mentioned stuff in history. This is not just a history lesson, but I've told you that there's stuff in history that, that very, very seriously applies to spiritual ramifications in your life. And these two policies are something that the enemy employs on a daily basis. They go hand in hand. And while there may be some short-term gains, they have both failed because the boundaries disappear and the purpose is taken and there's not a clear initiative. And this is why they fail. Boundaries matter. You cannot be neutral in a war and we are in a spiritual battle. You cannot, you, you can't be Switzerland because you're sitting on a pile of money. In this battle for your soul, there is no neutrality. You're in a battle for your very soul and salvation and the enemy would love to strip that away from you I want to tell you as a testimony right now I'm not giving up repentance I'm not giving up baptism in Jesus name I recognize what happened I am not giving up the infilling of the Holy Ghost that puts power within my life I'm not walking away from that I'm not going to be neutral but I'm standing here tonight because I recognize it is a battle and it is a fight and I don't want to lose my identity and I want my purpose and my objectives and my strategy to be clear. I'm here tonight because I want the power of the Holy Ghost to do an effective work into the territory of the enemy. I want to take back territory that the enemy has carved out. I want to stand in defense for somebody that's on the line. 
doing nothing is losing. I said doing nothing is losing. If you're sitting on a pew and you're doing nothing, you are losing. If you're doing nothing, you are losing. You are losing ground. If you're not praying, you're losing ground. If you're not reading the scripture, you're losing ground. If you're not coming to church faithfully, you're losing ground. Anybody hearing what I'm saying here tonight? I hope I got some witnesses. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But if you're not doing things in your life, you're going to lose. The church cannot be a neutral position. The church has to be something that is vibrant, that is moving, that has power, that has purpose. Purpose that has destiny. It comes from the kingdom of God and it comes to heaven and it's enveloped in the church. And the church must have power. And the church must have revival. And the church must have new people coming in. So, how does one retain power? Well, that's really the message here tonight. You have to stand for some things. Praise God. Man, this is so, so good tonight. Praise God. If you don't stand for some things, if you don't develop some convictions, it will be stripped from you, and pretty soon you'll be going a direction where your positions and your convictions become preferences. And preferences change with every wind of doctrine and every cultural revolution and now I'm just wandering around with preferences. And there are people right now in our society that are wandering around based on preferences. And they are not happy. There are lawsuits because they bought into a narrative that sounded so good. But it impacted and affected their future. you got to stand for some stuff. Praise God. If you don't stand for some things, the enemy will run right over you. Praise God. I need to establish this here tonight. The enemy is not interested in, in just playing with you. The, interest, the enemy is interested in destroying you. I have no doubt that there is a predator in the environment. Every single environment has a predator. And if you take the predator out of the environment, the environment collapses in and on itself. There is a predator in every environment, whether it's a lion, whether it's a polar bear, whether it is a shark, there is a predator. And what is the predator going to do? It's the aggressor. And so in terms of you living for God, there is an aggressor. You can't be neutral. The aggressor, it wants to take everything from you. You got to stand. You got to get... Man, I want to preach here tonight. You got to get some guts about you. You got to get some intestinal fortitude that says, I'm going to stand. I'm going to make a stand here. I'm not going to let the enemy just roll over me. You say, Well, I want to be a man's man. If you're going to be a man's man spiritually, you're going to have to take a stand. Stand. You're going to be a woman of God. You're going to have to take a stand because there are some things that will try to steamroll over you. And if it steamrolls over you, you're not going to be the man or the woman that God intended for you to be. you got to take a stand. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood 
but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand... Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shed with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're not wrestling against, we're not wrestling physically. We are wrestling against principalities. We're wrestling against powers. We're wrestling against spiritual wickedness and darkness. We're wrestling against an evil realm of influence. You say, well, I don't believe that. Really? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that they are pressing things down into very early ages of innocence. That should not be. Our children should not be sexualized at seven, eight, and nine years of age. That is an evil evil influence that's trying to infiltrate. There's got to be a stand somewhere. Why do we have a Christian school? Because we believe that we need to take a stand. In a variety of ways, we're taking a stand on education because we don't want to water down education to where our children cannot even proficiently be educated anymore because we don't want math to be racist. We want to keep the standard the same, an education that teaches them. And not only that, we want a godly atmosphere. And not only that, we want to instill in them a spirituality every single day that this is the Lord's day. And it's marvelous in our eye. Every day is a new opportunity to see the things of God and the goodness of God. And we can discover the creator in every single area and subject. There has to be a stand that is taken. And there has been a stand that has been taken. And it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. In the face of such an environment... We are admonished to stand. You got to stand for some things, and we have to stand against some things. Sometimes we we focus too much on what we stand against, and not enough what we stand for, because it's always easier to focus on the negative. We stand against that, but we also stand for some things. I stand for the blessings of God. Praise God, I do. Well, there are no such things as the blessings of God. Oh, yes, there is. Absolutely, there. That's what I'm standing for. You don't have to agree with me, but I'm blessed of the Lord. I'm thankful for his mercy because his mercy endureth forever. I shouldn't even be here, but I'm here because of the mercy of God. I stand for the faithfulness of God. I stand for Calvary. I stand for the blood of Jesus because it can wash and it can cleanse. I stand for the anointing of the Spirit in my life because it brings peace and joy unspeakable and full of glory. I'm standing for that. Why does he talk about all of those elements of putting on the helmet, the breastplate? Why is he describing all these things? Because he recognizes there's an attack from the enemy, fiery darts. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles 
of the devil. There is an enemy. There is an enemy that is deceptive, and he's not concerned for your personal welfare. He would love to take everything from you. He deconstructs everything. And I want to say something about that word right there because our culture likes to de deconstruct everything. I went to a graduation of somebody that graduated that was in social work and the main speaker, which was a student, said, we have established in our years here that all we do with every decision or understanding of any kind of truth is that we deconstruct it. Deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct has become the mantra. Well, I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem if you want to deconstruct some things, but if you start deconstructing, 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 then you end up with nothing constructed. You end up with nothing. And society is built on some construction over the course of of history and the efforts of some. You put that into a modern context here. That since 1973, there was a school that was constructed. Well, if you have somebody come in and deconstruct, 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 pretty soon it can tear down everything that was constructed. There might be areas where we could better here and better there, but I'm talking about dismantling something because you're looking for error instead of valuing the truth. If your default position is to look for error instead of looking for truth, you're going to have some problems. How about us buying the truth and selling it not and entering into the environment saying, where's the truth of God? Where's the goodness of God? Where is the truth that God reveals to me rather than only looking for error, error, error? When I come to church, I recognize there are fallible people in here. There is not, that we're not perfect here. But if I came to church only looking for the errors and only looking for the failures, I wouldn't get anything out of service. I came tonight not to look at your failures. I came to look for the truth that can be employed in your life. God's got a destiny for you. God's got great things for you. There's some benefits. I know a pastor. I wouldn't suggest this. I don't think I could do it. He schedules all of his meetings before church. All the problems, everything. He, he does that before church. Man, I've had some, some people come to me with some stuff before church, and then it just messes everything up. I can't worship. I can't preach. I, I can't. It's terrible. He wants to do everything before service because it's, he says, it helps me have better church. And I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around that, but I guess what he's saying is this. When the enemy deconstructs, 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 and the service starts... Jesus starts constructing, constructing, constructing. And he's not looking for the error in people's problems. He's looking for the truth that comes out of the ashes and out of the rubble. Praise God. Man, I feel, I feel an anointing in the house of God here tonight. I'm not coming deconstructing everything. I'm not coming looking at you trying to deconstruct everything that is wrong with you, everything that you should be doing, everything that you're not doing. I'm coming saying the truth of God is that he has made us a son. 
son and a daughter in the kingdom of God. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We have been blessed by his ability and by his strength and by his anointing. Thank God for that. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We're in a struggle. It's a universal truth that everyone faces opposition. I know that's a surprise to some of you. You thought you were the only one. Nudge your neighbor and tell them, hey, everybody has problems. <laughs> Everybody's got struggles. Everybody's got, <laughs> I thought it was just me having the problem. No, it's a universal truth. Everybody has problems. Amen. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 27, he said, neither give place to the devil. The enemy is going to try to come to you and try to offer some appeasement. You know what, if you give me that just a little bit, I'll lay off the struggle that you're going through. If you'll just give me a little bit of your prayer and I'll stop with the attack and everything else. Know this, you can never give place to the devil. The policy will not work. He's always going to want to take from you. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stand. And having done all to stand, stand. Therefore, don't give up your place. Keep your position. We have some examples in history. Biblically, Job refused even when his health was gone. <laughs> Satan said, he'll curse you if you let me attack all of his blessings. That didn't work. He'll curse you if you let me touch his body. That didn't work either. Why? Because Job said, I'm not giving place to the enemy. I'm not giving in. I'm not giving up. Ahab and Naboth. Naboth had a, a, a small vineyard that was given to him that was passed down generations. It was connected to Ahab, who was the king, a wicked king. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. And so he offered him some money for it. Naboth said, I can't give this to you. It's an inheritance. I can't give it up. And so Ahab went back to his, his palace. And Jezebel was his wife. He married incorrectly. He married Jezebel, who was not a Jew. She brought all kinds of pagan idolatry in. She found Ahab with a long face. She said, what's the problem? He said, Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. And so she arranged where Naboth lost his life for the vineyard, but Naboth said, I'm not giving that up. It may cost me my life, but I'm not giving it up. Job said, it may cost me my health and all the blessings of God, but I'm not giving place to the enemy. Gideon was in a wine press. He was suffering because the children of Israel were controlled. By the Midianites, he was in a wine press trying to thresh wheat. He had to draw some boundaries. Amen. 
There's some things that God has given to each and every one of us. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, wherefore are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's some things that you have to carve out. You have to carve out a prayer life. Thank God for people that pray on a weekly basis. What are they doing? They're carving out a prayer life. There are people that fast periodically to make sure that their own appetites don't control them. There are people that read the scripture. There are people that worship. There is this resounding signal to stand for some things. To carve out some things. To establish some things. And those blessings take hard work. It's hard work to develop some things. Amen. But be careful as you stand because standing is in a defensive posture. It's protecting something. It's guarding something. It's securing something. And so you're making a stand when the enemy wants to come in and offer some policies of appeasement and compromises. You're saying, no, I'm, I'm keeping the line right here. You, you're not crossing this line. But the problem with containment is that if you just try to keep a line here and there's no clear objective beyond that line, you're going to have some difficulties. This is one of the reasons why U.S. policy of containment was a failure. You cannot go into Vietnam and try to create a line and then just protect yourself based on a line. You cannot go into Korea and say you can't cross this boundary. The general that was in charge, General Patton, he had a solution to the policymakers, and he said, I want to go into China and bomb the supply lines that are coming in to North Korea. They said, you can't do that. That'll cause a war. But he was a general, and he understood something. If you draw a line here, the enemy's going to try its best to come into your territory, and then you're always going to be on a defensive posture, and you're never going to be able to actually battle and do a warfare because you're staying on one part of the line. You're standing for something but that's all you're doing. You're not taking any territory. You're not moving forward and in warfare if you don't have a clear objective you are in a mess. You're in a mess. Let me just, this might be interesting since we're talking about history and all this kind of stuff and there's very many opinions. I feel for the Palestinian people that are in Gaza. I, I feel for the residents of Gaza. I detest the terrorist organization named Hamas that has taken billions of aid. And instead of helping the Palestinian people, they have dug tunnels, bought rockets. They've created this entire infrastructure that is based on terrorism. It's terrorism. It's terrorism. The amount of money that has gone into that place could have elevated all the people in that space. But it has been turned into something that is a terrorist organization. And now you've got another country saying, we're going to go in and we're going to fill every tunnel. We're going to wipe this out. And the world is all up in arms. But this is the nature of war. It's ugly. It is bloody. It is not good. 
And so the people I feel for are the common citizens who are innocent and they're getting caught in between. But I want to tell you something. The enemy will take everything it can to develop a system to destroy you and to assassinate you. And you can draw a line and say, I'm drawing a line in the sand. You're not coming over here. But until you get something in your spirit that said it's not just about standing, but I'm crossing the line that I've drawn and I'm moving into areas, I'm taking territory. I'm declaring war. Hallelujah. Come on, church. We're not happy with just the people in this building. We want more people to come in this building. That means we're going to have to cross a line on our jobs at school. we got to cross a line and tell somebody, hey, I've got some good news for you. Jesus is good. Jesus can save. In order to do that, you're going to have to boom instead of just stand. You're going to have to move out and cross the lines. Based on his improper knowledge and confidence in superior weapons, this is a good point, too. You may think, i got all the firepower I need. I'll just draw a line here. And it's a, you read some stories about Vietnam and, and what those Vietnamese would do and how they developed tunnels and, and could create all kinds of You could have the, the, the greatest firepower and everything, but if all you're doing is drawing a line, it's going, to, it's going to cause you some major problems. And General George Custer witnessed his last stand in 1876 at the Battle of Little Bighorn precisely because his strategy was only to stand and not attack. I'm saying to you, you must stand and you must attack. Praise God. <laughs> the enemy's coming in like a flood, but the Spirit of the Lord is going to raise a standard against it. You know what that is? That's a flag. That's a battle flag. That means it's not just staying in one neutral position, but it is moving. Praise God. God has always been on the move. And there's always been struggles and there's always been difficulties, but he's always been on the move. In the early church, they were persecuted, but they were on the move. You know what they did? They went and had a prayer meeting, and they came out of the prayer meeting with boldness and they spoke the word of God and revival happened precisely because they were in a struggle and they were in a battle. You know how we have revival? When there's difficulty. You know how we have revival? When there's persecution and not everything is going right and we don't have everything but we're trusting in God to make sure that he helps us. Help is coming. Help is on the way. It may feel like our back's against the wall but there's help coming. If all you're doing is standing and containing, it's important, but eventually you'll break down. I've heard this statement, defense wins championships. <laughs> Baloney. <laughs> there has to be an offense that's putting points on the scoreboard. Defense is a part of it, but you also have to put the ball in the hoop. You can't just play defense. You also have to be agile, and you have to have the ability to score some points. 
If all you're doing is defending and you're not scoring points, you are not going to win. I think we've got to defend some things. I think we have to stand for some things. I think we have to have some conviction, but we better be scoring some points as well. There better be a power in children's ministry where we're scoring points. Children are receiving the Holy Ghost. There better be something happening in youth ministry where we're scoring points. Could be on the streets. Could be out of their minds, but they're in the house of God doing something for the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. We better take a stand for families. But if we're not scoring points in families, we're going backwards, not forwards. Anybody hearing what I'm saying here tonight? you got to stand for some things, but you also have to have power to do some things. What would be the greatest example? I'm going to need you to clap your hands, not right now, but when I tell you, because I do not want to do what I'm getting ready to do in the microphone, okay? On the count of three, start clapping, okay? One, two, three. Thank you. I've been under the weather lately, so... Well, what would be the greatest example in the scripture? Of somebody exemplifying power and moving forward, Matthew chapter four and verse number three. Jesus. The tempter came to him, Jesus is in the wilderness, he's been fasting forty days, forty nights. He is weak. And here comes the tempter. That's a whole nother message, but he comes at you when you're the weakest. Can I help somebody? You feel like you, you're, you're weak. And, and because of that, the enemy, he's, he's going to attack you at your weakest and lowest point. <laughs> and so if you're feeling weak here in the house of God tonight, I want you to know that there is an answer. And this is it. Jesus is at his weakest and the tempter says, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He comes back with a word. He quotes the word of God. The devil takes him up to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dast thy foot against the stone. Jesus said, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Every time there is a word that is coming forth. It's not just a stand, but it's also a power that is coming forth. The devil taketh him into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and says unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou will fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Every, every attack, every encroachment, every offer at some kind 
of appeasement was stopped. And not only was it stopped, but there was something else that was transferred that was power that revealed to the enemy, I'm not only drawing a line here, but I'm coming into where you are. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm releasing something that is powerful. Jesus, look at Jesus' life. I mean, this was a great example. Jesus did not come into the world. The world was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He did not become flesh and come into the world to appease the enemy. But he came into the world to overcome the enemy. To unleash something in a spiritual sense that was powerful. God never intended for us simply to defend, but he built within the framework of the helmet and the breastplate and all the other accruements of warfare. He put a sword into our hand. There is a defensive mechanism and there is a offensive mechanism. What is going to be your offensive mechanism? It's going to be the sword of the word of God. It's going to be the scripture. And so when the enemy comes in and tries to confuse you, you got a word that can go forth, and there is a power that can be unleashed. When the enemy comes in, you got something to stand up against the enemy, and not only stand up, but penetrate and infiltrate into the realm of unbelief and doubt and fear. I want the word of God to express power into the world of the enemy that is trying to destroy me. Hallelujah. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You've got to unleash the word. When all was lost in Job's life, he unleashed the word of God that registered a power. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Naked came I into the world, naked will I return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was a power. When David was facing Goliath, he unleashed a power. He said, you come to me with spear and sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts of the army of Israel. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. There was something that was unleashed there, even though the circumstances looked like it was arrayed against him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were faced with a fiery furnace, they said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this manner. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O King. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image when, which thou hast set up. There was something. They took a stand for something. We are not bowing. And not only are we not bowing, we're going to express something to you, O King. The Lord may deliver us and if he does we believe that he's got the power but if he doesn't our confidence is not going to be in you it's going to be in the God that we serve we're not backing away we're moving forward we're not giving in we're step taking steps into the territory of the enemy I'm preaching to somebody here we're coming to the conclusion of 2023 we've drawn some lines but we need to step into what God desires for us in 2024 God's going to do great things the Holy Ghost is going to be poured out. There's a move that's going to happen. 
As the musicians come tonight and the singers, we need to make an effort to stand and shore some things up. And we need to make an effort to advance. I'm asking you here tonight, if you look at 2023, What policies have you been following in this year? Policies of appeasement and policies of containment or biblical policies of power? I want you to reflect in your mind while we're sitting here tonight as this year comes to a conclusion. Where are your boundaries? Are they in the same place? that they were at the beginning of 2023? Or have they shifted? Are you praying as much at the beginning of the year as at the conclusion of the year? Praise God, have you fasted more at the end of the year than you did at the beginning of the year? Praise God, Brother Gary, came to me and he said, you know what, I'm new to church and I, I, uh, I want to read the scripture and I don't know how to do that or how to go about that. And so I said, well, let's talk about that. First of all, you're going to have to systematically do that day by day. So let's get a Bible reading chart and, and start reading the scripture. You, you can do it, Brother Gary. So I opened up the Bible, it's just, it's just overwhelming. There's so much there. I said, no, no, no. Take it, take it, take it one day at a time. This was the beginning of 2023. Did you know before 2023 ever came to a conclusion, I don't know, it was like August somewhere. It was in the summer. And I got a text message from Brother Gary Watts that said, I've completed reading through my entire Bible. I was so excited. Man, I was excited. That's a major achievement, Brother Gary. God brought you a mighty, mighty long way. And you, you, you didn't just draw a line, but you took some territory because you'd never done that before. Where was the line in your life? The line in your life was only what was preached over the pulpit and what you opened up when somebody read a text. But that's all it was in your life. That's where the line was. You know what you did with that line? You said, I'm going to move that line there. I'm taking something. I'm going to move the line over here. Brother Gary, don't, don't, don't ever give up that line. 2024, you need to read the Bible again because that's a line. That's something that you have established. The enemy will kind of try to come in and say, well, you've already read it once, so you don't need to do it again. Brother Gary, you need to stand up and say, you know what, as long as I live every single year that I am alive, I'm going to defend this line that I've established in my life. Hallelujah. Not only that, it's going to get better because there are going to be some things that come into my mind, scriptures that come into my mind. When the enemy comes against me, I've got something to unleash. Not only have I drawn a line, but I've taken territory. Praise God, I'm asking you. I'm asking you tonight. I'm asking myself. I, I, you can't preach to others things that you don't preach to yourself. Where are the boundaries? Where, where, where are the lines? And have they shifted in some areas? What have we given up? We live, live in a world that is, that is so influenced now by social media. Have we given up some of our time with some lines? Well, this line was here. This line was here, and it was de developed because 
I want to give this time to my family. Man, now I'm really preaching right now. This was a line I developed because I want to give this time to my family. And I don't want things coming in distracting me that's not going to help me be the man of God or the woman of God for my children and for my family. Have, have we given up some of those lines because now our time has been taken by other things? And the boundaries have shifted and the boundaries have shifted. As a church, that's individual in this building here, all over this building. We need to really ponder that tonight. We need to take inventory of where the lines are drawn. I'm just not feeling power and anointing and revival. I'll tell you why you're not. The boundaries have shifted. You've let other things creep in. Now your job and your occupation, family situations and all this kind of stuff has got you locked up. Instead of coming to the house of God, with an openness and a willingness to worship God no matter what happens because he's ultimately in control. You're letting all those other things dictate the terms to you because you've shifted the lines. Amen. I'm telling you tonight, you don't have to accept that. I said you don't have to accept that. You can say, you know what? That line shifted. Hallelujah. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm going to reestablish some things in my life. I'm going to recommit to some things in my life. I am not going to let the enemy destroy me. Praise God. Praise God. What lines? Now that's individual. As a church. As a church. Where are the lines? Where are the lines? Where are the lines for moving out of one gear into another gear? Shifted a lot of things in, in young people. There's still a, a, a class for T-Rockets and junior high students. We took all the high school and college and career kids, and it was, it was a bold move. And we said, let's engage and activate them into ministry. They're plugged into children's ministry. They're plugged into Spanish ministry. They're plugged into church ministry. They're doing the work of God. The line shifted. Well, before they were just coming to class, and that was good. There was certainly benefits to that. But we shifted the line. That not only do we come to church, but we also do church. And that should be part of our discipleship and our experience. We should be doing things in the kingdom of God. And so a part of that was because we established a Spanish ministry. There was no Spanish ministry, so where was the line drawn? Well, the line was drawn uh, here, over there, somewhere. We decided, wait a minute, wait a minute let's, let's establish something. just draw lines around yourself and you don't move outward, you end up dying. There has to be a stand and a conviction and then there has to be a movement that activates that. Praise God. And as we stand together in the house of God tonight, we're thinking about where boundaries and where lines are and how some of those have shifted either in the positive direction or in the negative direction. We need to commit to ourselves individually, each and every one of us. If it's gone in a negative direction, I need to reestablish and recommit some things. And if it's gone in a positive direction, God give me the power and the ability to keep things moving forward because I want the power and anointing of God in my life. And so I'm asking you here tonight. I'm asking you here tonight. Where are the lines in your life? Where, where have they been established? 
And can we spend some time here tonight recommitting to either taking back some territory or recommitting to continue to do what God is doing in our life? That's the altar call. And if you're serious about your walk with God and your spiritual formation, amen, I'm asking you to come to this front tonight. Asking you to come to this front tonight and say, God, help me to take inventory. Help me to take inventory. enough to say, Pastor, there's some boundaries that have been moved in my life and I've given up some territory. I'm going to be honest and lift your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I, I know. I know. Keep it up. Don't, don't, don't get it. Praise God. Look around you. It's, it's, not, it's almost every single one of us. Hallelujah. Come on, let's pray together. Lord, you're a God that is able to help us remove every distraction and every... Praise God. I feel the Holy Ghost now. Hallelujah. Come on, I feel the Holy Ghost now because we're being honest with ourselves. God, you got to help me. 